is our last sermon in the series, Love the Lord with All of Your Heart. And we've been focusing on what is called the greatest commandment. Today, we're going to go look at that as it appears in a different uh, gospel. So Mark chapter 12 is where we're going to be today. And we have a lot of ground to cover, and I just, I would beg for your, uh, for your your attention and your help as we go through this morning, because there's a lot of ideas. We're actually going to cover this whole chapter, all of chapter 12 this morning, because it leads right up to, I think, a, a way to kind of put the capstone on what we're talking about with loving the Lord with all of your heart. If you missed the first few weeks, you can go check those out online. I encourage you to do that. But we've covered a lot of ground. I'm not going to take the time now to go back and rehash that. There's too much there to rehash this morning. So, we're going to start right in Mark chapter 12. Now, some, some context, this is getting towards the end of Jesus' ministry here on earth, and he was kind of heading towards the cross at this point in time, and, and he is in Jerusalem now, and he goes to what is called the temple courts, and here while he's at the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, as well as the Pharisees, and we're going to see the Herodians come, and they challenge him all in this kind of one this one time that he's here at the temple courts. And so it's a great kind of exchange. And I think there's a ton that we can learn as we're going through here. Today we're just going to kind of focus on how this parable, starting at the chap- uh, beginning of chapter 12, leads us into the emphasis, the, 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 the thrust behind what Jesus is saying when he gets to this point about the greatest commandment. So, Jesus began to speak to them in parables. He told stories, as, as many pastors often do. We get that from our, from our example, from Jesus. Every year we read the true story of St. Nicholas to our children. They still believe in Santa. There is true St. Nicholas, and he was a great guy that did some great things. So I'm not going to negate that. Good job. But Jesus taught in stories, and he used parables. Sometimes his parables were hard to understand, and there are some parables that Jesus taught that we still struggle in truly understanding what they meant. This was not one of those parables. This was a parable that, that when those who were around heard it, they knew, and we'll see that in the text, that they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about and who he was talking about. It says, a man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. So he's renting out the vineyard. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. That's probably his rent, what he, was, he got because he owned the property and he was letting the others have it. Probably wasn't a huge percentage, but he was going to get the percentage that he deserved because it was his property and that was how he would be paid. Verse 3, but they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he, the one who owned the vineyard, he sent another servant to them, and they struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed, and he sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. And he sent him last of all, saying, certainly they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. 
Come, let's kill him, and then the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, he'll come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now look here. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, of the law and the elders who were all gathered around, they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. We're going get to on, get on with it, but I want to just kind of show you how Jesus was talking about uh, the, the teachers of the law and those who had kind of led Israel astray. So let's go back to the beginning and just work our way through this parable quickly and get some understanding before we take on the rest of this chapter. So a man planted the vineyard. Who is the man that planted the vineyard? That is God. God is the representative there, is the man who planted the vineyard, and he put a wall around it, dug a pit for it, uh, the wine press, and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. And so this is where we kind of get the idea of the human race coming into existence, and we're coming into God's vineyard, God's creation, and he put us over creation. And then at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, but they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. And what we're going to see is that as you look, if you actually take time to read back and go through the Old Testament, you see God sent different messengers all the way out through the 1,500-year or so span of, of the Old Testament, and he sent messengers to try to correct his people. And what happened to those messengers? They, they were just at, at best ignored and at worst treated poorly and beaten. So you know the teachers of the law and the religious leaders, the elders, they know, they know what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is getting at, hey, you, we entrusted, God entrusted this, this idea of following me, this relationship, he entrusted it to, to the religious leaders, of, you know, starting back with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then bringing the law through Moses and, and then all of the things that were supposed to happen and be held for, for the purpose of bringing people into a relationship with God had become something that had been abused and used to control people for their own advantage. And so Jesus is saying, hey, look, we, God, God, and you know, we, know, we know what you've been up to, boys. If they knew what was coming, they'd know the gig is up. But that's not all. That's not all. There's more here. Um, so they killed. They killed. And then he had one, one left to send, a son whom he loved. That's Jesus. Jesus is the son that gets sent in. And what happens to Jesus? Certainly they're going to respect the son of God when he comes, right? But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard, which is exactly what happened to Jesus just a few months, who know, I'm not quite sure how long after this, but shortly after he said this, he was killed and buried outside. And what happened? Well, they kind of just took control and, and made things, uh, made a godless religion of following rules and no longer worshiping a creator, and that's exactly how it exists to this day. 
But there's, there's kind of this, this uh, painting here in this parable. And then as Jesus, you can imagine, he's in a temple court. So, you know, he, there's, there's lots of space around him. And there's things that are kind of happening all over the space here. And we're going to kind of get a little bit of a picture of that. But, but you can imagine Jesus, you know, maybe he's sitting and there are a bunch of people who have come. And, and they're just kind of sitting around listening to some of his teaching. Maybe Jesus from time to time gets up and goes over and wanders into a new crowd of people to share a different aspect of teaching. And then, then he gets up from there and goes over to a different aspect, probably, you know, an outdoor area and just, you know, uh, kind of a majestic place that you might think of. And here we are in the setting of the temple courts, and, and this exchange goes on. Jesus kind of starts the dialogue with this parable, and it's always great to put down the people who are hosting you when you start off, you know, a, an exchange, and so that's what Jesus did. And, um, but then you're going to see there, there are these other things that come, and they're testing and trying Jesus as they go through this. So verse 13 says, later they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him, look at that, to catch him and his word. The Pharisees were kind of the police officers of, of Judaism. They were the ones that were supposed to hold people accountable to the law. That was their job. And so if you see Paul, Paul was a chief, he was a Pharisee, and he was supposed to make sure that people were living in accordance with the law, and if not, then he was the one that was responsible to make sure that they were punished. You can see that as an example. But there were also this group here, the Herodians, and they're only mentioned a few times in the New Testament. This is one of the times. The Herodians were people who wanted to overthrow Caesar's government in Jerusalem and put a King Herod, a Herod back on the throne and reestablish the throne of Herod and something local as opposed to being under the rule of Caesar. So think about that. Keep that in mind because they both have an agenda when they're coming to test Jesus, and you have to look at their questions in light of the agenda that they're bringing to test him with. So the Pharisees and the Herodians, they came with their agenda to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Here comes the question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? I'm going to stop right there. Think about the motive behind the Herodians. What The Herodians want to overthrow Caesar, right? They, they don't want Caesar in control of their local government anymore. So what do you think they're looking for when they're asking Jesus th this question? They're looking for someone to give them permission to start a revolution. And as we see when we get towards the end of Jesus' life, that is still taking place, and they chose a revolutionary over Jesus when they chose Barabbas to be released. And so they're looking for some way to start a revolution and get the control or get the power. And so, so the motive behind the question is really, hey, can you give us permission to do what we want to do? Can, can you be the one that just kind of starts us down this road? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. He knew the hypocrisy of the Pharisees who, who were holding people to a standard that they did not live up to themselves. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Denarius was a coin, had Caesar's image on one side and then a, a local official on the other side. They brought the coin and he asked them, he said, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then Jesus said to them, 
Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Now, if we just take it at face value, there is a great deal of content in Jesus' one-sentence response. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. But in the context of his whole dialogue that he's going in, I think we actually can learn quite a bit more. First, he is talking about paying the imperial tax, and he says, yes, we should pay the imperial tax. So as followers of Jesus Christ, are we given permission to not pay our taxes to the government? Oh, we're supposed to be good citizens. And if you go read, I think, Romans chapter 13, you'll see we have a duty to be good citizens living by the laws of the land as long as they don't conflict with the moral laws that God has given us. So there are no excuses when it comes to paying the tax because even as we look at our money today, we know that that's not really our money. We work for it. We think it's our money. First, we understand it's God's money, but if you look on the money itself, you see that it's actually the property of the U.S. government. So Jesus would say, give back to the government what is the government's when it comes to paying the tax. But as I was studying this throughout the course of this last week, this, this picture kind of emerged from me as we go through these different, uh, these different uh, dialogue, debates, and discourses that we have here. And I think there's something that Jesus is getting at that goes more than just answering the question to pay the tax. And it's, I think it's found in the second part. It says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So if they're giving back to Caesar, how do we know what is Caesar's? It's because it has Caesar's image on it. Well, what has God's image on it? People. And so he's saying, give back to Caesar what has Caesar's image on it. Give back to God what has God's image on it. We go all the way back to the garden, to the very beginning, and we see that God made them in His image. Male and female, He created them in His image. We are made in God's image. And He's saying, hey, you, need, you give your taxes to Caesar, but more importantly, give yourself back to God. So it's almost like he's shouting back, doing a callback to the very beginning of the story and say, hey, remember, in the beginning, God created all of this stuff. God created the heavens and the earth, and he formed it all, and he created everything, and he gave it as a gift to humanity. Then he created humanity in his image to walk in relationship with him. Remember that. Remember how God created everything. And then, of course, we know what happened, the fall comes and we, we turn away from God. We choose to rebel against God. We want to be like God ourselves and we want to know what God knows and it's not enough to trust God. We have to know for ourselves. So the rebellion comes and now we start to see hundreds and hundreds of years of rebellion against God that lead to the point where Jesus comes. And he's going to kind of reinstitute the idea of being made in God's image and he's going to do more than that. He's going to redeem humanity that had been fallen and restore us into the likeness of His Son. Then, verse 18, then the Sadducees, this, this is really interesting to me. I'm sorry if you're not as interested, but I think this is really, really interesting to me how this whole thing progresses. The Sadducees, anyone know who the Sadducees are? They don't believe in the resurrection. It says that right there. That's how you know, right? You don't, you don't have to trust me. It says, then the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, so the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, so they're sad, you see. Uh, 
They came to Jesus with a question. Look at the agenda behind their question. Think about this as I'm reading. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry, marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Do you see anything suspicious about the question they're asking? They don't believe in the resurrection. Why do they care about the resurrection? If they don't believe in the resurrection, it doesn't matter how many people this girl married because they're not going to be resurrected. It shouldn't make any sense. But what are they trying to do? They're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to catch him in a lie or catch him in some kind of half-truth or mistruth so that they can point out that he is not who he says he is. And so they're trying to catch him. But Jesus' reply is great. Are you not in error because you don't know the Scriptures of the power of God? And look at that, that's just, that's essentially his whole response to the whole question about marriage. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, they will be like the angels in heaven. Now, about the dead rising, it's like he's, got, he's answered their question, like, don't ask me silly questions. Now, let's get to the real issue, about the resurrection, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're badly mistaken. The point is not who marries who and who ends up married to who and you know, the afterlife, the point is that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. That means that we who follow in Jesus Christ will one day raise again to this new completeness of life. We have life now, but one day we will raise with, with a completely restored body and we'll be in restored relationship with God and we'll have this amazing relationship that now Abraham and Isaac are currently enjoying with God. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The hope for us is that in the resurrection, we too will be in relationship like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and all of those who have gone before us because he is not the God of the dead part of us but of the living part of us. That's good, isn't it? And what does the resurrection have to do with that, with that thing? Well, marriage and resurrection... First, there's the idea of resurrection, that, that Jesus would actually rise from the dead. And so there's the idea that Jesus, the Son of Man, is going to be killed, but the Son would rise again. But I think it actually goes back all the way to the image of, of Christ, the image of God put on man, and this original idea, the original identity, the original desire that God had for us was to be in this vineyard and work with God and cooperate with God in such a way that we, we kind of have this great relationship of, of back and forth, as we saw in the very beginning, and, and getting back to this point, and resurrected life, this new resurrection, now we come back to this, we're restored and resurrected, and now we are walking with God. Again, this is, this, is, this is not necessarily a lot of this explicit in the text, but it is biblical. If, it's not, if, it's, if you have find a problem with it and challenge me, I'd love to talk to you about that. 
But I think he's, he's starting to paint a picture. And we're going from this great big funnel, this huge picture of God, and he's going to start bringing it down to a very, very, very narrow point. One of the teachers of the law, verse 28, came and heard them debating. The debate's still going on. You can imagine the scene. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is called the Shema, S-H-E-M-A. This is something that became a very core part of, of Israel. They would put it, they would inscribe this on a piece of paper and put it in a box, and then when they would go to times of prayer, they'd have the box strapped to their forehead to remind them that this is the point. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then if you go and you look at this at the story of Israel, you see one of their big struggles was idolatry, and they would go into a land and they would see as they were in this land that, that there were problems and there were idols and they would be tempted and drawn away to worship some of these other idols. And so the very beginning of the most important command is the Lord is one, worship the one and only God. Here, H-E-A-R is Shema. That's what the, the Hebrew word Shema means is to hear. So Shema is to, the first word of this command. So hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What's the most important thing that we do? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher. I love this response. Talking to Jesus the creator of all things, the second person of the Trinity. So, good, good job, teacher. Proud of you. You're smart. You're a smart boy. You're right in saying that God is the one and there is no other one but him. It's like, yeah, yeah, I think I would know that because I am God. So, you know, but thank you for reaffirming me. I appreciate that. You're right in saying what you're saying. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And he's pulling in some other scriptures where, where God says, I desire your worship, your heart, more than sacrifice. I desire you to live like you've, you're supposed to live more than bringing me sacrifice. The sacrifices was never the point. Relationship was always the point. When Jesus saw, I love this, when, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And then no one dared ask him any more questions. But here we have this huge story that is kind of being encapsulated, and it's coming to this, and Jesus comes back to the greatest commandment, which is still something that we live by today. But essentially, you can get this feeling that, hey, if we go back to this parable, if, if, the, if the people that God had entrusted with the kingdom of God had just lived out these two commands, then we'd be in a lot different situation than we are now. But now look, now look, we have religious leaders, teachers of, the, teachers of the law, chief priests, elders. We have Pharisees and Herodians that when the Messiah, the promised Messiah, has arrived on the scene, they are so wrapped up in their twisted distortion of what the law was that they can't see God standing right in front of them. 
And you get this feeling, it's like, if you had just done these things, everything would be so much different, but, but you didn't. So now what do we do? Well, whose son is the Messiah? While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at the right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How can he be his son? And I love the commentary. The large crowd listened to him with delight. It's almost as though the commentary is, they weren't quite sure what Jesus was getting at when he was saying this, but it's fun to listen to him. He's a good teacher. And even this is, this, there's a lot of debate about what was really being said when Jesus was quoting this passage. And I'm not going to get into that other than to point out that now we're getting to the Son. And I think part of the motivation behind what is happening here is Jesus is paving the way for the world to see that he is the son of God, that he is the son of David, that he is the son of man, that he is the son that has come to redeem and to rescue and to restore and to save us all. He is the son that comes when, when everything else has fallen apart. He is the son that comes when we've ruined everything and we've, we've destroyed everything that God had put in place. He's the son that comes and he's the son that, son that comes and we still, we can't figure it out. We can't get it under control and we're still involved in the process of killing the son. The son still comes. But as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. We've often talked about how Micah 6.8 is a summary of a lot of the Old Testament laws, doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly is, is a summary that, that has just kind of been worked down over generations and it's passed down. And so there is no doubt that the teachers of the law, especially those who would have that classification, that title, would know Micah 6.8 and that they're supposed to walk humbly with their God. They would have no, no doubt know that throughout a lot of the Old Testament there are references to how God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And we see those quotations brought into the New Testament. They knew that they were supposed to be walking humbly with their God, and instead what they had done is they had taken their position with the religion that they had created, and they were using it to control and manipulate and dominate the people under them. So Jesus is warning, look out for those people. Look out for the tenants that I told you about in this parable. They, they like to come in and they like to change things and do things for their own advantage. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. And look at what they do. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Widows is one of the classifications through the Old Testament that we're supposed to take care of. But when there is a widow, then the body of Christ or the, the, the church or whatever you want to call it in the Old Testament community was supposed to come and take care of the widows. That was a justice issue. They, they knew that. But what were they doing? They were instead devouring widows' houses for their own benefit and taking their things as their own possessions. 
And here we come to the very end. So Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. We've talked about this before, but, but there would be fanfare oftentimes with the gifts, right? And, and so someone would come in and they'd kind of bring in this big gift and, you know, probably the more religious and the more colorful the robes, you know, they would, there'd be more fanfare as they were kind of bringing. There'd be just a pageantry, essentially, of what they were doing. And they'd bring this gift and just kind of make this big show of it. And, you know, s- things would, would sound and everyone would kind of just look at, oh, look how amazing they are. Look at the, look at the big gift that is being offered. And so Jesus is sitting down and he He's watching in the temple that is supposed to reflect his relationship with the Father and his Father's relationship with the community. He's seeing what's happening, and and he looks and he says, but a poor widow, who were the ones that were being oppressed by the teachers of the law? A widow. But a poor widow came in and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything. All she had to live on. And the reason I think this is, this is such a great finish to this whole dialogue, this whole exchange, is not because of the money aspect, but because he's getting back to what he's just said is the most important thing, and that if we had been living out from the very beginning, we would see a relationship with God. He says, they gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. In this one act, we see, we see a trust in God that, that this lady, this widow, trusts in God at a level that all of those with all the fanfare do not exhibit because she, all she has to live on, she is giving as an offering to God. That, that, that's, that signifies trust, that she trusts and believes that God is going to provide for her. But more than that, more than the, than the money, I think what it is getting at is that she loved God with all of her heart, with all of her soul, with all of her mind, with all of her strength. And how do we know it? Because we see it exemplified in this act. And if we, who God originally entrusted with the idea of taking care of this creation that he had given to us, if we trusted him in the way that we have been trusted with his creation, how different would things have been? See, God has still entrusted us with the kingdom of God. And if you want to read through the, the book of Matthew, you can see just this great picture of the kingdom of God and I encourage you to do that. But just like the Pharisees, just like the teachers of the law, just like the elders had been entrusted with the kingdom of God, we too have been entrusted with the kingdom of God. There's this verse that says, To whom much is given, much is required. We have been given much. God has abundantly 
from the overflow of His love and His mercy and His grace and His truth, He has poured out on us this opportunity to be in the kingdom of God, and He provided the way through His Son to be able to have this opportunity to be in the kingdom of God. And, and what is some of the things that He's put on us? Well, the same command has been put on us. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love one another. And I think we have to ask ourselves a question that the teachers of the law missed when they heard that parable. What have we done with what's been entrusted with us? How have, how have we handled this amazing gift that God has put in our hands? And I think we have to ask that on a few different levels. We have to ask it on a personal level. How have I handled this gift? How am I living out this amazing gift that, that I have a relationship now with the creator of the universe? How, how am I handling, how am I stewarding, how am I taking care of this amazing gift of being in the kingdom of God, of being a child of God, of being an heir, a co-heir with Christ? How have I handled that? We need to ask ourselves and think about that. Has this thing that God has entrusted to me, has it, have I done with it what I'm supposed to do with it? Last week we talked about idols and worship, and we said that worship is anything that consumes our attention and our affection. Well, loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength means that we're also supposed to worship Him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. Worshiping Him should be something that drives us in what we do as followers. We should be driven to worship God with our lives. We should be driven to live lives that are consumed with the attention and affection of God, that, that we want to give God all of our love and all of our attention, and everything in life flows out of our attention and affection with God. Can, can we say that that is the life that we lead, or, or is, for many of us, our relationship with God just the little bit that we get on Sundays and we don't spend much time with Him elsewhere. We've been entrusted with a great gift and we have to respond in the right way. Are we worshiping Him? By the way, side note on worship, um, I think there is, there's something very significant about worshiping God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all of your strength. And I want to issue a, a kind of a caution to us because we live in a world where it's, it's easy for us to consume lots and lots of different kinds of media. And I don't know what music you listen to, but I think music in particular is one of those things that has the potential to get down deep into who we are. Music is one of those things that, that brings all of those elements together. If we're, and if we're not careful, then we're, we're kind of planting these ideas and sometimes very bad, false ideologies deep into who we are. So I think we need to be careful about, about the songs that we not only listen to, but the songs that we consume in such a way that they take our attention and our affection off of Jesus. Are there, are there ideas and ideologies that have been rooted deep into who you are that affect your relationship with God because we've been more consumed with worshiping these things or giving our attention and our affection to these things than God? Is there, 
Are there mistruths that are buried deep in our heart because we've allowed these things to get deep into who we are? And I would challenge us that that maybe what we need to do is we need to replace those things with worshiping God. And that doesn't just mean singing worship songs, although that's a very important part of it. It's why we spend and dedicate time to that on Sunday mornings, because worshiping God is something we're commanded to do in Scripture through song and, and through the raising of hands and the clapping of hands and with instruments and with our voices. And it's supposed to be loud, and it's supposed to be this thing that we just lift up in and, and response to God's grace and His goodness and His mercy and the fact that He loved us so much that He created this world for us and He put us in charge of it. And now, post-Jesus, we get to worship God in response to sending His Son to die for our sins and He re- resurrected from the dead and now we have the resurrection power living in us through the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have received this great gift from God and so we worship in response and so we have to humble ourselves to a point where we say, you know what? It's not so much what I want to do, but it's what you're telling me to do. And if I do these things, then I know that we will find life and joy and happiness. When was the last time you worshipped God in that way? We have to ask, how have we handled this gift? How have we handled this gift of God's kingdom that has been trusted with us as individual followers of Jesus Christ? We also have to ask ourselves, how have we handled this gift of the kingdom of God that has been entrusted to us when it comes to the community of God that we're a part of? Are we allowing this this gift of the kingdom of God to bring us into an intense community with fellow believers who are living under the same grace and the same love? Are we allowing this kingdom of God to bring us together in an intense relationship that cannot be explained other than the fact that it is powered by the Holy Spirit? Or are we just kind of dabbling in the idea that I do my God thing on Sunday morning and don't you mess with the rest of my life? You know, it's a, have we really given ourselves over to the kingdom of God? Or are we just trying to Well, it's kind of like we saw throughout the rest of this chapter. Are we trying to take the parts of this that work well for us and use them for our own advantage and create a life that that we can control? Are we like the Pharisees and the Herodians who are trying to manipulate Jesus to get what we want so we can go do what we want? Are we like the Sadducees who are just trying to tear down Christianity or no, I don't really believe I have my doubts. Let's stir up some arguments and see what happens when we debate these issues. What have we done as a community of Christ with this great thing that has been entrusted with us? Thirdly, and lastly, we have to ask ourselves, when it comes to the mission of God through our lives, How have we handled this amazing gift that has been entrusted to us? One of the other commands that was given to us was to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And just a few short uh, days after that, before he would ascend into heaven, he said, you know, you will be my witnesses. A witness is somebody who testifies an agreement that that gives a witness of Jesus. And so it says, you will be my witnesses. You will testify. You will tell your story about what I have done for you, what you have seen in me. And you'll tell, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Have we been 
Jesus' witnesses? Have we told the story of Jesus to those places closest around us, to the people that God has put around us on purpose? Have we been faithful in telling the story of Jesus? I'm not talking of one of my cousins. I don't know where he was, but he posted a picture. You know, he took a selfie, and he was somewhere, and there was a guy holding, you know, one of the signs that I talk about all the time. It said, repent or go to hell. You know, the kingdom of God is, you know, all those signs. And she kind of took a selfie of him with that sign in the background. I'm, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about testifying with your life, letting your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I'm talking about in relationship that, that do people know that it is Christ that drives you? Do people know that Christ has made this eternal difference in you? Or are we so, are we ashamed or are we afraid to bring Jesus up? With our coworkers, with our neighbors, with, with those who kind of get outside of that immediate circle, are we, are we willing to, to not cram Jesus down other people's throats, but to say, I'm with Christ and He is with me. I, I stand with Him. And whether you like that or not, He is the one who has saved me. He who is the one who is worthy of my worship. He is the one who is worthy of my life. And I am going to stand with Him and stand in such a way that they are drawn to Christ in you. My fear for the church today is that this parable that Jesus told could be true of so many of us. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Later, Jesus would tell the disciples that, look around you, the fields are white. They're ripe and ready for the harvest. It's harvest time. It's, it's the time we're living in. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed and sent another servant to them, and they struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully, and he sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed, and he had one left, a son whom he loved. He sent him, last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let's kill him, and we can do what, our, what we want with the inheritance." So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Have we, have we done the same? Have we kind of gotten rid of the substance of Christianity, taken what we wanted out of it and, and made it what we want instead of accepting it for what it was supposed to be in the very beginning? Have we thrown the sun out of the vineyard that God created? Have we kicked God out of our lives and we're just trying to live it in our own? Have we taken over the vineyard and, and we're doing whatever we can to manipulate the situation so we can take control of the vineyard for our own good? Or would, would God come and find us as good and faithful servants who He had put into this vineyard and, 
and we did what he had told us to do. Maybe not perfectly, but we did what he told us to do with it, and we, we took care of the vineyard. We took care of the harvest. We did everything we could, and we, and we were faithful to give back to God out of the harvest that we received, and we understood that the harvest only comes because God created the harvest in the first place, that, that the fruit only comes because God chose for the fruit to be produced. Or Are we understanding that it's all God's and that it's all something that God created, that He gave it to us as a gracious act to enjoy as a part of our relationship with Him, or are we trying to take it and use it for our own advantage? My hope and prayer for us as we finish up this series and move on to something I'm really excited about in the weeks to come is that this would just be foundational for us, that, that we understand that we have to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, that we are committed to being consumed with the attention and the affection of loving the God who created us. And that from this love that God as we're going to see in weeks to come, that God has poured out in abundance. This love of God that God has overflowed into our lives, this love of God that, that is infinite in measure, that this love of God would just be pouring out of our lives into the world around us, and that we would just be these living, breathing examples of what it means to be an active member of the community and the kingdom of God. And that's what not only we need, but that's what our world desperately needs. Our world doesn't need the religion of the teachers of the law and the elders and the Pharisees and all of that stuff. Religion will never get us to God. The world needs God's love. And the only way for the world to get God's love is if it's in us and pouring out of us, overflowing from us. Or are we agents and instruments of God's love overflowing that love onto the unbelieving world around us? Would you stand this morning? Someone texted in the question, do we really even know what we have been given? And if we're going to be honest, what we've been given is so much greater than we have any comprehension of. Someday we will know. Someday our eyes will be opened and we will know the extent of God's grace and God's love. But for now, we just know little bits and pieces. But the day is coming. There's coming a day when, when we will know. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for the way that you have given your love so freely to all of us that, that if we choose to live in accordance with the way that you've given to us, that we will not only find a better life, but that we will find true life. And I hear your voice right now calling us, the good shepherd calling us into this abundant life that you have for us, that, that you see where we're living, you see where we are planted right now, you see the state of our vineyard. You see how well we have cared for it. You see how well we're taking care of it right now at the moment. You see the state of things that we are surrounded by, and you know what's best for us, and you're calling us into something that's different than what we can do of our own strength, what we can provide in our own power, that you're calling us into greener pastures. You're calling us out of religion. You're calling us out of hypocrisy, and you're calling us out of the agenda-driven Christianity where 
we're going after God for what we can get out of God. You're calling us out of those pastures that, that have no life and no sustenance to offer us, and you're calling us into the greener pastures of life with God. You are just the good shepherd, and you know what's best for us, your sheep. Father, I pray as we finish up this series and we think about your sacrifice and what you did for us on that cross. Father, may our hearts overflow with love. May the attention of our mind be consumed with this gift. And Father, may we not stop there, but may we turn that into action. May, may we with all of our might love you. With all of our personality, with all of our soul, with all that you gave us to make us who we are, may we love you in response for the way that you have so radically loved us. Greater love has no man than this than that a man be willing to lay down his life for his friends, that you have loved us beyond measure. Father, help us to live our lives in response. And Father, I can't wait for the day. I look forward to the day. I look forward even to the week ahead of us as we hear stories of how you're using this gospel light and this gospel life in this body to draw people out of the darkest places of this world and into the light and the goodness of God's grace. And I thank you for the joy that is in this place, and I thank you for the passion for worshiping and following you that is in this place, that, that as our body, as we have gathered here this morning, that, that we have come together as this one body to raise up one voice of worshiping the one true God, and that we have heard your word, and we are committed out of love to respond to your word. And we thank you that, that as you fill us up with your power this morning, that you're going to send us out of this place in a few short minutes, powered up to go out and live lives that glorify God. And we trust and we we believe and we expect that through those lives, shining the light of Jesus Christ into the darkest places of this world, that we're going to hear how you are working through us to make a difference in this community, how you're working through us to bring lives that are far from you into relationship with you, and that you are going to not only transform us, but you're going to transform this world that you have put us in, and you will, for your glory, bring more and more people in through the harvest that you have already prepared. Help us to be faithful servants in the harvest that you've given. In Jesus' name.